It is appropriate that we begin our reflection this morning with the image of wilderness, of desert. It feels a little bit like a wilderness up here. I feel very lonely. <laughs> it feels like I put all these chairs out and no one came. But the biblical image of wilderness fits well with how life sometimes feels. A desert place where nothing will grow. A time, a season in life where difficulties have mounted and for whatever reason we feel completely alone. Life and hope and peace and joy and love have eluded us. The biblical illusion of desert is a wilderness place often used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe both a literal spot because these nomadic people who came to be known as Hebrews and then Israelites and then Judeans and then Jews, our spiritual ancestors, knew what it was like to come out of the desert. They had been nomadic people moving from place to place, looking for food and shelter. This image fit well with how life for them often felt hard, even frightening. For the shepherds that appear in this second chapter of Luke, our other scripture this morning, there also is a sense of this wilderness. We mentioned last week, the life of a shepherd was very difficult. These were people who repeatedly had been outcast. They had been put outside the boundaries of regular life because as Kristen described, it was not only that they didn't smell great, they were uneducated, they didn't have homes, they weren't people that anybody else wanted to be around. They lived in a wilderness, both literally and figuratively. They were lonely, left out people. And yet it's in this wilderness, even today, that literal place of, of Bet Sahur, which is the shepherd's field right outside of Bethlehem today in Palestine. It's very close to the village, the town of Bethlehem, and yet it's a place where it's very rocky, very hilly, not much grows, only grass in certain seasons. It's a wilderness, desert-like place. It is appropriate then that our scripture, both from Isaiah and Luke, intersect in this spot, this metaphorical desert, this literal place where things struggle to grow and to be. And it's here that these heavenly messengers convey uh, an incredible opportunity of good news to these left out people called shepherds. 
We mentioned last week, there's a word of hope from our first candle two weeks ago. Last week we mentioned for the candle of peace. It is announced to these shepherds, this is good tidings of great joy. It's peace for all people. And we said last week, it's, it's not the Latin word that the Romans used, pox, for peace. This is a forced peace, a superimposed peace, a peace where everybody's supposed to do what they're told and bad things won't happen to them. It's not pox, it's also not erine, the Greek understanding of peace, which simply means absence of conflict. Everything just sort of is, but there's no real life there. Instead, it is the biblical Hebrew concept of peace, shalom, the threefold peace, the vertical peace of peace with God, the horizontal peace, peace with those around us, and the inner peace, the peace with ourselves. This three-way peace of shalom is the powerful message offered to these left-out, strange, outcasted people, the shepherds. Which brings us then to our third candle burning today. Notice it's a different color, pink. It's sort of the, the church tradition, the historical trajectory of this season of Advent to let us all know something a little different happens this week when we move into this amazing emotion represented by the pink candle of joy. It is a flame that burns, but it burns with a background. I'd like to wish for you the biblical background of joy. Your Christmas gift in preparation for this amazing gift of God to us, the preparation of joy I wish for you, humiliation. How many of you have ever been humiliated? A few of you. And those of you that didn't raise your hands, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. You should be humiliated. Humiliation. Today's story in the second chapter of Luke, while we have the lovely crash, this manger scene, and all seems well, and we sing gentle carols, actually the story that lies before us in the second chapter of Luke is a story of humiliation. Think about it. Mary lives in a small town, a little village known as Nazareth. Now, some of you grew up in small towns. I did. And I know in my small town, everybody knows everybody else's business. Something happens to you, and the neighbor five streets over knows about it. It's none of your business. Yes, it is. It happened in our town. It's our business. Everybody's looking at everybody else's stuff. In my town, you even looked at people's clotheslines, wondered what they wore that week. And my goodness, 
Everybody knows everybody else's business. Nazareth was a little bitty town. Archaeologists estimate that in Mary and Joseph's time when Jesus was born, Nazareth was home to probably 50 families. It's a small town. Everybody knows what's going on, and they all know that something has happened in Mary's family. Why? The word on the street is she's with child, and she's not even married. Oh, wait till I tell Martha about this. Let's go to Bible study and have a prayer time about Mary's family. And next thing you know, everybody's whispering and pointing and talking. And it's humiliating. This is Mary's plight. This is why Luke quietly tells us in the first chapter of Luke that Mary probably, though Luke cleans it up, got sick and tired of being talked about. What did she do? She went south. She left town. She went to see her cousin Elizabeth in Judea where she didn't have to be talked about and made fun of. This was Mary's plight. While Mary is dealing with her issues, we've lost our screen. What happened to our slides? I had these beautiful slides for you all. Oh, there we go. There's also Joseph's dilemma. It clearly was operator's error, and it's, I'm the operator. See, I've got this little, it's my fault. I'm humiliated. So I just fit right in to this biblical story. It was all planned. <laughs> Joseph has a dilemma, too. It's not just Mary's plight. Next week, we're going to hear this story from another angle, from the Gospel of Matthew. And we hear in Matthew a little more subtlety related to Joseph and how he feels. It becomes pretty clear in Matthew, not quite as clear in Luke, but Matthew lets us know Joseph wasn't sure he believed Mary's story. There's tension in the text. Mary's plight is not just what people are saying in Nazareth. The man that she loves, the one that she wants to spend the rest of her life with, isn't sure he buys this news from the angel. But it's not just that tension. Joseph has a dilemma. He has to leave from Nazareth, go to Bethlehem with this young potential family with Mary, and he can't find a place to stay. The Bible tells us that all the inns were full, but this too is humiliating. For Joseph, because you see, he's stuck. His wife's about to have a baby, and there is nowhere for him to go, and he is humiliated. Dan Gaither was a man in my congregation in Washington, D.C., suburb right outside of Washington. 
who loved me and was patient with me and taught me many things. He was a veteran of World War II and he told me about coming from Alabama, living in Maryland, and as a family, traveling back over Christmas and in the summer to see their family in Alabama. Now, for most of us, this would be something that we would just sort of take for granted, but the Gaither family, as African Americans, in the 60s and even early 70s, had to pack a huge ice chest full of food because as Dan gently and gracefully told me, nobody would feed us. No restaurants would let us in. In fact, he said, folks wouldn't even let us stop to go to the bathroom. And then he told me a story. He said, one Christmas we were leaving, going from Rockville, Maryland, down to our home in Alabama. We stopped at a filling station and my son needed to go to the restroom. He was still a young boy and the owner and some other men stood around and laughed as my son needed so badly to go to the bathroom and they said, don't you dare go to the bathroom here outside. Please, please let me in. Dan said, as a father, he came over and tried to say, I'll pay you, I'll I'll do anything. Please let my son use your restroom. They just laughed. And they laughed more when his little boy had to go to the bathroom in his pants. And Dan said, I will never forget my son's look in his eyes when he turned and looked at me as his dad and I could do nothing about our shame. We were humiliated. How does Joseph feel? He can't even find a place for his wife to have a baby, which now becomes Jesus' humiliation. You see, Joseph's dilemma means that he's been pointed to We've cleaned it up in our way of doing things. We have little barns and cute little stables. In fact, in Bet Sahur, just outside of Bethlehem, the shepherd's field is filled with caves, dark, cold, wet places where shepherds would move in with their sheep. This also, these limestone crags were places where people would just sort of clean out, dig out, and allow animals to stay in. It wasn't a nice, fresh barn. It was a cold, damp cave. And Jesus was laid to rest in a manger, not a cute little wooden thing filled with hay, but the manger, we actually have a picture, an actual picture of Jesus' manger here this morning. These are all over the Middle East, all around Bethlehem. This is what a manger looks like. If you had French in high school, you remember the French verb to eat is manger. This is where we get the mangled English translation manger. It means to eat. It's a place where animals slobbered. This is humiliating. 
This is where Jesus was placed in a cold, hard, uncomfortable spot, a little bit of hay underneath, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in an animal feeding trough. He started his life in a manger. He ended his life on a cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. This is humiliating. The whole point of crucifixion is to humiliate people so they won't fight against Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And yet this is how, in some miraculous way, the potential of Christian joy emerges out of humiliation. For Jesus, starting and ending and all through living within this human condition of vulnerability and hurt and pain and wilderness and desert. And yet, the possibility of joy that for you and for me, in our humiliation, in our hurt, in our left outness, the desert can bloom. Flowers can blossom in those places where we never thought possible. And the abundance, not only of possibility, of hope and of peace, but of joy where we never thought possible. Isaac Watts, exactly 300 years ago, wrote a poem. Some of you maybe know about Isaac Watts in 18th century England. He was a prolific poet, preacher, musician. He also was a dissenter. In those days, sometimes they called Baptists dissenters because Baptists had the audacity to disagree with people about how things ought to be done. That happens every now and then around here. Isaac Watts was a dissenter. He also struggled mightily with a number of issues and problems and physical and emotional problems. And yet he took Psalm 98 and Genesis 3 and wrote a poem called joy to the world. Let's sing this song, 300 years exactly old this year. Stand together as we join our hearts, minds, and spirits singing joy to the world. Out of our wilderness and desert erupts this magnificent gift from God. Let us sing together.